Welcome to I Swear on My Mother's Grave. My name is Dana Black, and in 2016, I lost my mom. And now I'm talking to other people who have also lost their moms. And I don't just mean in death, because there are so many ways you can lose a mother. And we're going to get into it. So let's talk about our moms. Happy fall, y'all. I hope you're all wearing a mustard-colored or amber-colored cardigan right now, and you're walking around your neighborhood, kicking the freshly fallen leaves around you and, and smiling as you listen to this episode. Maybe you're eating, you know, a, a, a fresh, crisp apple from the market or drinking a spice latte as you walk around in the fresh fall air. That's what I hope for all of you. Happy fall. Today's guest is one of my good friends. He has babysat my dog. He has read my tarot cards. He has spent Thanksgiving with my grandmother. I met this person in 2015 in Chicago doing a play about a young boy coming of age and coming to terms with his sexuality, while also exploring the sexuality of President Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, the play was a trip. It was a trip. My guest grew up in Dallas, Texas, and also spent a lot of time in Colorado. He lost his mom to breast cancer at the age of 12. When his mom was dying, she turned to him and said, go out there and find your tribe. Go and find your people. And he did, in the arts. He is incredibly intelligent, fiercely empathetic, witty, generous, smart, and just just a good person. I wanted to quote right here, right now, before the episode starts, something he says later in the interview so that you hear it right now. And I hope it moves you just as much as it moved me the first time I heard it. He says, death, it is the only way that we have things like loyalty and honor and love and generosity and care. Those things are only possible because of death. Because if we didn't die, those things wouldn't mean anything. This is Lane Flores. Middle school is when I was dealing with my own queerness Mm -hmm. and like coming to terms with that. And then I came out when I was 14 in high school in Dallas. And for about a year, year and a half, I was like the only... I was a little bit of a poster boy for Mm -hmm. the gays at my school. Although I think there were one or two others. I just didn't, they weren't in my circles and they were like sports people. And I didn't ever hang out with them. (laughs) (laughs) The theater was on the other side (laughs) of the school from the sports departments. So I didn't ever know them. But then my junior year of high school, I uh, started dating a boy. Was it junior year? Maybe it was senior year. I can't remember, but I, he and I dated for like a year, year and a half. And then, and we were kind of like the, the gay couple that everyone invited to the parties to stir up some drama. And we did. <laughs> and you did. I was known as like a queen of storming out of rooms <laughs> when I was in high school. I was very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can picture it. So you said that you didn't come out or you weren't, you were sort of wrestling with your sexuality when you were 14. But mm-hmm. you lost your mother when you were 12. Yeah, I lost my mother when I was 12. And that's actually more around the time when I was wrestling with it. I came out when I was 14. Mm-hmm. 
I started to understand my sexuality or started to like uh, seriously look at that probably when I was closer to like 11. Because I know she was still alive when I was starting to deal with that. But I never did get to have that conversation with her. Which sucks. I mean, there are a lot of conversations I didn't get to have with her, but that was a big one that I, I do regret not talking with her about. And one of those things that I have to kind of be kind to, like, teenage, preteen me about in my memories because I get so frustrated with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's hard sometimes to be kind to him from this perspective now. What are you mad at him for? Just not speaking out soon enough and wasting time, you know? The summer before my mom died, she was, I mean, she was going through chemo and my cousin was visiting us and she used to stay with us quite a bit just throughout my childhood. She stayed with us. So me, her, and my sister would like stay up all night watching movies and we were just having like a fun cousin summer, but then we would sleep all day long because we'd stayed up all night, like, playing. And it meant that I actually didn't see much of my mother during that last summer. Because she would wake up during the day and be, like, trying to do things during the day and then obviously have to sleep quite a bit at night. And so, like, I just... It was a big waste of time, but I didn't know that at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. But that's just a small metaphor for, like, all of the time that I wasted, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And that's just that it's it's it frustrates me still to this day that I didn't do that. But I was also a kid and I was going yeah. through trauma. Did did she know or did the family talk about how sick she was or were you hopeful? Oh, mom is just going through some treatment and she'll get better. And or did you know she was really sick and you were in denial? Or do you not know any of these answers because you were eleven or twelve and now you know the no. answer? Right? I mean, I knew she told me when I was because she got. She was diagnosed when I was probably 10. And um, she told me at the time that it would, it wasn't a bad stage and that it was going to go away. And then she did go into remission for a while after some surgeries. But the fact of the matter is when she was diagnosed, it was already like stage three or almost stage four. And they were like, you've got only a couple of months to live. And so that was a lot of her hope speaking mm. and her, I think, not being able to to tell me that she was dying. And so when it's a remission, I, as a kid, didn't know that that was uh, only a brief reprieve. I thought that it was done. And so then when it came back, I was really surprised. But then I kind of started to fall into a recognition of like, oh, this is this is going to be um, a much bigger thing than the last time. So, so I knew, I think that, sh- that it was happening. I don't know that I was able to process it or or deal with it in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, that's hard. That sucked. Yeah, <laughs> it really that sucked. sucked. Well, when you were wrestling with like your own, you must. You're young. You're wrestling with lots of things that you wanted mm-hmm. to probably talk about with your mom. But you mean you literally mm-hmm. knew that there was something going on in terms of your attraction. Mm-hmm. to other men. I suspected. You suspected. Yeah. I and suspected. 
And what would you have what would you have said? And was it anything you could have said to your dad, or was it something you? Could oh have God, not no. at all. <laughs> not at all. Okay. No. My dad and I at that time weren't close. I didn't know how to talk to him. Uh, and I didn't understand him. Like we just didn't have the kind of. Bo- I was a mama's boy like through and through when I was a kid. In fact, went at the funeral when she died. My dad coming up to me at one point and being like, I know this is harder for you than anyone else because you were you were closer to her than anyone else in her life. Um, and I was 11 <laughs> or 12 years old. Wow. <laughs> I was like, cool, cool, cool. I'll just carry that with me for the rest of my day. Yeah, that's like something you, that's something you say to your 55-year-old, the uncle or the, the person. That is a really intense thing to say to a child. Um, yes, yes. Well, uh, intense things were said to me a lot during that time period. I think that, you know, that's something that I have to be kind in my memory to the adults at the time because they were also going through trauma. Uh, but that is also hard. Yeah. <laughs> and when you and, say yeah. you're a mama's boy, what is that? What does that mean? I know what the phrase means, right? But sure. what what does it mean for you? What is It meant that she was the center of my life. Like everything kind of revolved around her or she was the grounding force in my life. And so I could do without a lot of things and my world would still keep spinning. But without her or without the energy that she was enforcing in my life, everything stopped, everything changed. And I I worshipped her. I do think that there is to a large extent a kind of deification of her especially after her death. This is something I've dealt with now um, the past 20 years since she she died. It's like navigating my own understanding of her as a human woman and as a mother and as my mother, which are two different things, and as, you know, what I had then created out of that, you know, in my own head that was never real but that I have just essentially willed into being because of the intensity of my emotion and my um, my connection with her. When you said you think about your mother as a woman and then as a mother and then my mother, mm-hmm. and you said they were two very different things. Yeah. What does yeah. that mean? So something that I had done that was really harmful for a while for me was take the idea of motherhood and put it somewhere in a, in I think a really misogynistic way and I think our society does this a lot but you take motherhood and you put it up as like one of the hallmarks of being a woman right and that is a male gaze thing and it took me a long time to recognize that and understand that and it's because I was doing that with my mother my mother to me was that was what she was her identification was before woman for me she was my mother And so there was a conflation there because she died before I was able to come to really any sort of full maturity in any way, shape or form. (laughs) I was, I was conflating that, you know, with all the women in my life and uh, especially older women. Hmm. I would looking back now, first and foremost as mothers or or uh, mother material, and that if means you will. nurturing. That means yeah, yeah. For me, it does. It means all those things. But positive or negative associations, mm-hmm. it's still uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's still an arbitrary thing that a young male mind is putting on someone. 
without their consent, you know? Like, that's not something that they necessarily were or were wanted to project. And the males, the cis males in your life, your dad or whatever, you can't connect with, you can't talk with. They're not right. there to really listen. Right. They're not there to I didn't a, have that same hug. father thing happening. So much it was just this. And so, like, it really, it took me to a point of, like, probably, like, late high school, early college, where I started to recognize that I was doing that and try and correct myself. And that's been, like, an ongoing thing in my own self-work you know, the kind of work that we're all doing is like not, is, is not doing that anymore. <laughs> you know, letting people just be people before I, I put things for my trauma onto them. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's nice of you. Did your mother have I try. A, I try really hard. Did your mother have a life outside of the home? Well, she did, I guess, yes and no. When I was a kid, she was a stay-at-home mom. That's what she wanted to do. That's what she wanted to be. And it was a lot of how she identified. Um, when she got sick, I think there was an attempt. And I think part of it had to do with money, but part of it was also like a denial and also refutation of the illness. So she actually went out, she had gone to college and studied interior design and been an interior designer before I was born for, I think, the first three years of their relationship before they had me. She was a designer, and so she went back into she she got a job in real estate, like helping sell homes, and had like business cards and stuff. I remember I still have some of them. Um, just like the last year and a half before she died, she'd already been diagnosed. Like I said, I think a lot of it came out of knowing what was going to happen, but wanting to participate in life anyway. Wow. Um, and that's something that, like, now, at the time, I wouldn't have put that together. But now it's something that, like, is so important to me and I respect so much, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mother was incredibly courageous in that way. And part of why I idolized and kind of deified her so much is because of things like that. Mm-hmm. She's just really brave. She's also really fucking funny, so. <laughs> <laughs> So you've shared with me many, like at least twice, I feel like it's come up where, you know, when she was dying, she she told you to go mm-hmm. out there and find your tribe and find your people and to go yeah. find the thing that makes you feel good. And that's courage. So yeah. I'd love you to talk about that. But I also love you to talk about kind of the weight of the weight of someone telling you, go out there, go mm-hmm. find your people, go be happy. And then if you don't go out there and find your people or you don't succeed (laughs) or you don't be able to become a famous playwright or whatever, what that feels, the pressure of that. Before she died, I was having troubles fitting in and I was being a little dick kid. (laughs) (laughs) When you say fitting in, what do you, what does that mean? I mean, I was very gay and struggling to accept that, and everyone knew. I mean, it wasn't like it was well, you, a secret. Yeah. You were barging out of rooms, so yes, you were... I was storming. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I was struggling a lot. I didn't have many friends, um, and I was struggling with bullying and stuff, and she was now, like, on deathbed. Like, she was on bed rest. She wasn't leaving bed at this point. But she was still lucid, and so we could have conversations, and she told me I want you to go, I want you to try and get into, like, the the theater class at school 
and this is in middle school. And I was like, okay. And I did it for her. And then I like, I signed up to do tech on the school play. And I came back and I told her and she was like, I'm so happy. You're going to love those people. That's going to be like, I'm, I'm just glad that you're doing it. I'm glad you're doing something. Cause this is, I, this is before I had anything. So like, mm. I, didn't, I hated sports. I didn't have a community. I didn't have a team. Like I didn't have things like that, you know, and I was going through trauma. So I hated everything. <laughs> and so I signed up to do tech on this play. And then I got into this theater class and my theater teacher was like, are you signed up to, I remember we were doing like improv one day and she afterwards was like, are you doing the school play? And I was like, I'm going to do tech on it. And she was like, absolutely not. You're going to be in the play. And I was like, (laughs) okay, I don't really want to. And she was like, no, you're going to be in the play. I'm going to, I'm going to make you do this. That feels like what every real tech person would say. Every Mm -hmm. stagehand or crew person would be like, no, (laughs) I don't want to be in it. I specifically would like not to be the focus. (laughs) The point is that I don't like being seen and I've been trying to not be seen. I kind of hate everyone. I'll be over here. Right. I I just want to, I'm doing this for my mom, you know, (laughs) essentially. But then, so she made me do the play and I got a small part in the play. What was the play? It was uh, a melodrama called Snake in the Grass. Mm. I can't remember the name of my part, it was this little one. But then the boy playing the lead had to quit to do basketball. And then they made me the lead. What? Yeah. And then they made me the lead <laughs> of the like, play. This is like a TV show about It a was kid, ridiculous. About I've a kid never... whose mom is dying and he says, she says, go find your tribe. And you get the lead because somebody drops <laughs> out to go do fucking sports. <laughs> Could go do sports. So I ended up getting the lead. And I was Sheriff Billy Bold. Hmm, I can see it. Oh, yeah. I still have the movie if you want to. I still have the recording. <laughs> But then my mom passed away. And so she didn't actually get to see it um, or ever see me perform. But yeah, so it was uh, it was just this crazy string of events. And they like postponed rehearsals then at that point, like for me. Like the school was really cool about like, we want to make sure that you can still do this. And oh, you I think were my theater in teacher rehearsals. at the time. You were not, yeah. it hadn't gone up. You were in rehearsals. Yeah, we hadn't gone up. Yeah. And then it happened. Had you told her about any of the lines or like no she wasn't lucid anymore by the time that i moved from being a a stagehand to a small role in it she had already lost lucidity and she was on so much morphine at that time that there was just no no way to like really get that through but um in many ways it was a very fairy tale thing Mm. but it was just one of those dark fairy tales you know where, you know, you get something, but you, there's a lot of payment involved. Yeah. So. How did you feel once the show was over? This exciting thing happens. You find this new thing in the midst of trauma, in the midst of losing her. Then you've got to keep going on with your life. But did you process, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed being on stage. I, or I didn't, or I didn't like it. I don't know how you felt. Oh, no, I was, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. It was so, I mean, it was real saving grace and more even than being on stage. And this is something that has always been a thing for me in theater specifically, is that more even than the performing, I had finally found a community. And that was really what got me through. When you kept going as an actor, when you kept pursuing this career as you went to college for it, right? And Mm -hmm. You're an actor now in Chicago. Every time you take a gig, every time you audition for something, every time you're working on a role or trying to approach a character, are you thinking about your mom? You know, is there inherent trauma in just the act of 
rehearsing or acting. I don't experience that a lot as an actor. I think because that whole part of my life, while it came out of this experience, like my my involvement in the theater came out of my experiences. But it with, wasn't part of your life before. It wasn't, like I had never auditioned. I didn't audition to do that play. I didn't audition to do any plays in middle school. You know, it was just like I was put into things. And then I, I didn't start auditioning for things until I was in high school. And then I was in a different like locale as well. I mean, I was back in Texas at that point. So it felt very removed from her in that sense. So I don't have trauma there. I do, it does come up a lot in my writing. I don't think I've been able to write a word that didn't somehow come back to her in some way. She's just in there in everything. I'm about to workshop a play that I wrote like last year. And when that happens, I'll have to do like kind of some more redrafting and stuff of it. But like just going back and looking at it now, I'm like, oh, this is just another play I wrote about my mom. Like everything, (laughs) everything keeps coming back to her in that way. And I think that it's because there is, um, there's something about self generation when we're talking about creating things, right? Like the actor, we have to do it. We have to generate things from our lives because the character is always going to be a little bit through our gaze. But when you're writing some things, specifically when you're writing like new stories, because there's so much freedom there, like the character can say anything I want them to say. So much of what they're saying is coming directly from me in a way that sometimes acting isn't that, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. We're translating when we're acting the voices of the playwrights and the performances that have come before, you know, all the other artists in the room, we're translating that through our bodies and through our voices out into this new message. And so we are a conduit for it. And uh, some of us goes into it, but it is so much more than that. When you're writing so much of it is just from you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so I find a lot more of her there. Well, I keep thinking about what you said earlier in this conversation, you talked about that experience of her telling you to go find your tribe, how it went from being a stagehand to the lead and then she dies, that it was this dark fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And I also know that you sort of write in a, there is a fairy tale as there is a, yeah, yeah. There is an unnatural and otherworldly element to how you write, not a literal living room drama. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's interesting that it's, she's coming up, but she's still not coming up literally, right? Yeah. Then how is she coming up? Is she taking on different forms and, Mm -hmm. or not even her, but the loss of her is coming up or is, is anger coming up? I mean, is all of it coming up because it's just like this podcast, to be honest. And you said earlier too, that it sucks. All you said was it sucks that she's gone and then you stopped speaking And so I keep thinking about this podcast as a form of talking about my mom and how wonderful it is. And isn't it great that I started this thing? But then I have days like kind of today, I like don't kind of want to do it. I don't really want to fucking process it. (laughs) But that's sometimes how I feel when I start going, I'm going to write a story for the moth Mm. or I'm going to journal about it. I'm like, I don't know if... I want to keep talking to my friends, but then I have days where I just want my mother back. It's yeah. like, nah, I don't want to put a Facebook post up about my mother and make some beautiful story. And I mean, I do because I want to share it and I want to get it out of my body. That's why you're writing. That's why I'm doing a podcast. I want it out of me. But truthfully, I don't want to have to do the podcast. I want to have just my yeah. mom back and right, being healthy and being not 
riddled with cancer or being not an, an addict to dealing with neuropathy and depression. Yeah. I think it's talking to the same kind of stuff that we were talking about earlier, right? Is that like, when is it performative? Even if it's performative right, even, for you. Correct. Even you know? if it's healthy. Even I'm putting a Facebook post up sometimes because it's healthy. Yeah. It feels good. I want to get it out. And, I, and then I want people to, I want people to see that post or read that play or re- listen yeah. to this podcast. Of course, you want them to get something from it. You want them to, mm-hmm. to, to feel less alone. You want. Well, and I want to share my grief, the feeling of other people experiencing this with me. It's less just all on me, yeah. you know? And the, a willingness to share those things when we're talking about uh, art, like a play or like a podcast, and we're talking about consuming art, people are willing to share those things in a way if I like, sit you in a mm-hmm. room and just start telling you all mm-hmm. the sad stories about my mom and like start crying. Right. I don't want to put that onto people. But if I can share it in art, then it's a way, for me at least, to not process it. I think that word is so complicated and loaded but it's a it's a way for me to spread this out and lessen the load in just one of the holes in my heart i can kind of spread it out over multiple and like people are willing to take that on and to be there with me and to and to examine that with me and to examine it in in their own lives because i've presented it now in a way that is to a certain extent universal and i think that that's what this kind of stuff does you know, on a positive and on mm-hmm. a, in a positive way. But I understand the question of like, well, how much of this is me just performing again? You know, maybe for me or or maybe even for her. Right, right. Absolutely. How much of this is like me trying to set up some sort of a monument? Yeah, right. That, how precious is this? You know, yes, how precious absolutely. is this? And it, you know, is it everyone's lost someone? So get over it, you know, get over your mom or get over your dad or or you didn't have it that bad. You know, you yeah. at least had a mom, and uh, then I start feeling guilt, right? Then I go, well, I had right. her for a, how, how long? 36 years, and she was really great for a lot of it and amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, but yeah, and then I don't want people to misinterpret anything, right? Just like mm-hmm. your play, people will misinterpret it for, or they're going to take your story and then put all this stuff on it, just like any play, right? right? Just like any play. That know? must be, that must be hard. So I'm curious too about when you, start putting something so personal out there and then you're in a talk back and they're like, this is a play about, about, about global warming. And you're like, well, I mean, maybe, maybe that's in there too. Right. The loss of the earth, mother earth, mother, mother. Um, but I go, that must it's a theme. <laughs> it's, a theme. It's, it's a recurring theme, but it also kind of doesn't matter. Right. If they put something right. on it, they're going right. to, that's what art is, right. They're going to put something right. on it. And, but how has that felt then transitioning from acting to writing putting something so personal out there that you have intentions for it and the intentions might change? Oh, what a question. I do think that there's a recognition that has to go into it for me of the the transactional nature of empathy, that I am asking you to be vulnerable by being vulnerable. So I'm going to Brene Brown you right now, and I'm going to say, yeah. wow, Lane, <laughs> that's gorgeous. <laughs> say that again and sure. say it slowly. <laughs> I am I'm asking you to be vulnerable by being vulnerable. The transactional. And, oh, the, yeah, sorry. That, that, that is a transactional nature of empathy, is that I offer this up to you, and if you choose to take it, 
you are also then offering something up because by taking it, you are becoming vulnerable as well. And I think the hardest thing as a writer so far that I've experienced, I have yet to have a, a play really like produced. But um, <laughs> well, theater theater's having a tough go right now. We're having a moment. We're having a moment. Um, the hardest thing about it is like when people refuse that gift because they don't want to pay something, and that's hard. And that's the the preciousness that I have to take out of it is like, well, they're refusing that gift maybe because they 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 can't pay something right now. And I have to be okay with that, mm. you know? And it's great when people do take it and when people do offer up their vulnerability by taking mine. That's awesome. That's a really wonderful thing to feel. I think that we all feel as artists. But if they don't, that has to be okay with me as much as it hurts or as much as it feels like you're missing the point or you're missing the message or as much as it feels like, you know, you're not seeing me. Maybe that's just because they can't, they don't have that capacity right now. I don't know other people's trauma and, um, right, right. Yes. and it's not my job to center yes. myself in their life. Right. You know, that's right. And just because I'm willing to talk about my mom or you're willing to write or doesn't mean everyone's ready to do that as well. Doesn't mean everyone's ready to. Ready to talk or laugh or joke or process or mm-hmm. not process or yeah, it's yeah. we all come to it at different times, which is also what I'm trying to explore and talking to people is how grief yeah. Grief is not universal. You know, it's it so is not universal. Absolutely. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. <laughs> um, I promise this has a point. Uh, but I, and one of the things, you know, we talk about now in in uh, in a way that we don't or that we didn't, you know, back 20, 30 years ago is that like, you know, when you see uh, if there's an issue like someone got murdered and, you know, um, we see that the husband is on TV and he's not crying, you know, there's a, a public perception mm. at one mm. time that like, oh, he must be cold or he must not have feelings. Um, he doesn't care. So maybe he did it kind of a thing where that's not necessarily the case or we can't assume that anymore because people process grief so differently. Not everyone is a crier. Not everyone, or or even if they are a crier, maybe about other things. I myself tend to cry at things that are happy. Like that's really what gets yeah, me. Yeah, you do. You do. I do. You do. I do. I weep when things are joyful. You that do. is what always gets me. But I'm not much of a crier at sad things, you know, even in my own life. And but that doesn't mean that I'm not feeling that grief or I'm not experiencing that. And so we can't assume that about other people, you know. Is that because you were so angry for so long and you talked about being angry as a kid? What do you think mm-hmm. that's what do you think the crying for joy is? I think it's uh well uh, digging down that psychological. Yeah. <laughs> what did your therapist what did your therapist say? What did the therapist said? <laughs> I think the reason that I I don't cry about sad things is because I was so sad and angry when I was you know, a preteen and dealing with both my mom dying and coming to my own terms with my own sexuality, didn't know what was going on. And uh, to, if I cried when I was sad, that I was a target all the time. Hmm. Right. Uh, hmm. And so I think I learned or I built neural pathways to, to protect myself, um, to be able to deal with that grief without that response. Um, but I never had to do anything like that for joy because joy wasn't something I was feeling a whole lot at that time. And so when I started to really 
experience, especially in the theater or in the arts moments of like uh, those beautiful moments of joy in pieces. I was more mature at that point and able to be open with how much emotion I would have coursing through me in those moments. And so now it's something that like that for me is a catharsis of and, and a celebration of that. Going back to kind of being resentful of, I don't want to have to process this shit. I just want my mom back. Yeah. Do you then find yourself being resentful of others who still have a mom or got to have a mom at least till you were 31, right? Let's say you lost your mom today. We can't say what it would be like to lose our moms Mm -hmm. in a different point in our lives. Right. I have moments of resentment for sure, but it's changed and evolved what that resentment looks like. Mm. It's been very, very different at different periods in my life. So, you know, when I was in college, it was that I don't have someone to come be my cheerleader the way she would have been, or I don't have, I don't have a home to go back to the way I would have if she had been around that other people and I went to school with did. When I came to Chicago after that is a lot of like, I don't have the financial help, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have any sort of rock in that way. Now that I'm in my thirties, it's a lot of, you know, I have friends, you know, I've been, I've been on the phone with my mom for like an hour and a half. And, you know, as soon as I'm done, I'll be able to give you a call back or chat with you. Like small things like that, just like our little spikes of pain that, um, that'll always be there, you know? Yeah. And some days they're heavier. Some days they're heavier than others. Some days they're heavier. Some days they're a lot heavier. Absolutely. I mean, it's never going to go away. No, we know that. But the larger feeling of all consuming rage and grief that really defined my teens has faded as ebbed, you know, mm-hmm. mostly just because I didn't have time for it. If I wanted to be productive with my life, it's hard to be grieving all the time. And so you build these little ways to deal with it in your life or whatever. And then eventually you get to a point where like, you're not thinking about not dealing with it. You're just not dealing with it. <laughs> and then you go get into therapy and have to deal with it again. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's a vicious cycle, but it's what we have to, you know, it's the human experience. Yeah. But it is, it's drawn me a lot to pieces of art that I consider to be uh, death centric or grief centric. Because I do believe that it is the most powerful thing that we as humans have to define the qualities that we aspire to having is death. It's the only way that we have things like loyalty and honor and love and generosity and care. Those things are only possible because of death. Because if we didn't die, those things wouldn't mean anything. Jesus, you need a (laughs) podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That was so beautiful. That was beautiful, friend. Thanks. Is that because of the art that you've been consuming or the art that you've been making or both? When you say a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's that's the art that I aspire to make in the world that I recognized I am attracted to because mm-hmm. of the art that I consume. 
Is there anything that you wanted to talk about in terms of like customs your mom passed down or things that you guys did together or just yeah. something um, you wanted to share a story about? Uh, my mom was really into practical jokes. You keep saying how funny she was. I she, love she this. She was super funny. I have more stories about my mom being a smart ass than I have about my mom. Like sad stories about her. Huh. Um Again, I, she's very witty, and I think that I, uh, whenever people tell me I'm witty, it's a very special compliment to me because I, I attribute that directly to my mother. Uh, she could be crass. The big thing that she did, she would, she'd do practical jokes. And so Halloween was our big holiday when I was a kid because it was my mom's birthday. She was born on October 31st. So we would have big Halloween things, like level of Christmas was our <laughs> Halloween at our house. We, we like decorated the yard. We went all out. We had all this shit, like blah, blah, blah. Costumes. Costumes. All the costumes, all the things. But we would also have, like, a month-long Halloween celebration. And so it would be, like, lots of Halloween things kind of going through on. And during that time, she would always do things that would, like, just terrify me and my sister. She loves scary movies. I love scary movies now as a part of that as well. But, like, one time, (laughs) she drove us to a graveyard in October. And it was, like, 7 p.m. The sun was setting. And she's like, let's go to the graveyard at the sunset. My sister and I were like, yeah, okay, okay. So Joe's to this graveyard. We get out of the car, and we're, like, looking around. And we're like, wow, this is crazy. And then my mom hops back in the car and drives away. And she just leaves us <laughs> at the graveyard. Was this where the trauma started? Or <laughs> Possibly. She leaves us there for, like, 15 minutes, and my sister at this point is bawling. I'm just, like, looking around, like, what do we do? We're in a fucking graveyard. <laughs> and, like, it's turning into nighttime, and it's October. And then she, like, drives back. She essentially just did, like, a drive around the block and then came back up. She pulls back up. She's laughing her ass off in the front seat, just like, you should have seen your faces. And she did shit like that all the time. <laughs> and I loved it. I mean, we would, like, be scared and stuff in the moment, of course, but, like, I couldn't get enough of that. And so if I ever have a child, I don't know that I will. But if I ever do, uh, practical jokes will be a big part <laughs> of my my parenting. Did your mom have a favorite costume? Well, kind of. <laughs> she had this mask. Another thing that we did a lot in the Halloween month was we would play hide and seek. Only it would be like we would have to play. It'd be like an enforced hide and seek. Like my sister and I would be minding our own business, doing nothing, like playing in one of our rooms. And then my parents would just like shout from the other room, hide and seek. And then we'd turn off all of the lights in the house, except the one in the room we were in. And we would have to like try and find them in the dark. <laughs> and they would always pop out of things wearing this scary mask. I'm still afraid of werewolves to this day because I think it was a werewolf mask. Yeah. And she would pop out of nowhere. And this game would always end with my sister underneath the kitchen table crying every single time. That's Mm. where it ended. (laughs) But I loved it. (laughs) Now that's a dark fairy tale. (laughs) I mean, yeah, my mom and dad had these old people masks. So old man, (sighs) old woman face and put them on. Uh, But they would dress up and then both wear these two masks and greet people when they've had parties or open the door. They didn't always dress up. But so when I was in elementary school, my best friend Angela and I chose to wear them as well. So we were fifth Uh graders. I was the, I was of course the man, you know, Uh I had a deep voice back then. Yeah. Yeah. I was the man. She was the woman. And so we were these little kids playing old people, which is also weird, you know. That's then terrifying. A, terrifying. That's a horror movie yes, right that's there. that's the horror. <laughs> that was weird. My parents was weird just because they were my parents. It was like, you're not old, 
like you're not that old, but they were still adults. But this, we were freaky and we were in suits and she was in a little dress. I had a walker. It was very bizarre. In fifth grade. Yeah. Um, I like to end every conversation asking my guest if they would tell me their mother's name and how you feel about her in this moment today after this conversation, what you're feeling and how you're remembering her. Um, her name was Sarah. Sarah Jane Flores. Um, and I think... I feel about her right now the way I sort of trained myself to feel, which is grateful. But sometimes things poke through that, and it's happening right now a little bit, but where... um, I'll always wish that I had more to be grateful for. And I think that's human. But in a way, I am... I'm just glad that I have that capacity to be grateful. Because there's just nothing I've experienced quite as... um, earth-shattering as all of this, you know? Yeah. So, but again, that was a training. Like, it's not something that, like, I I wasn't grateful for a really long time. I couldn't recognize that that's something that I needed for a really long time. So I'm grateful now, too, that I... That I can be or that I I have gotten there, but that doesn't mean... Doesn't mean you can't be conditioned to think something else, too, so... Absolutely. You're the best. I love you. I love you. Mwah. Thanks for sharing today. Okay. And Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I actually did this interview this summer, and I learned after the interview that Lane was applying to go back to school at Loyola here in Chicago for the classics, specifically Greek and Latin language and culture. And he got accepted. So I recently reached out to him and said, hey, we talk about your writing a lot in this episode. Maybe you'd want to share some of your writing if it's about your mother, maybe a piece of a play or a poem. And he said, yeah, I actually have a poem called Demeter. And Demeter was the Greek grain goddess and mother of Persephone, in case you didn't know. Yeah, I just learned that recently myself. So she doesn't get talked about all the time in myth, but when she does, it's always extremely important which is also kind of how the Greeks talk about mothers in general. So when she comes up, it's a big deal. So here's Lane reading his poem, Demeter. Summer is the darkest time for what it remembers. Watch agave light slurry through thickness and fold back into loam. Dark mulch, inventor of flowers and sacred oak roots, Here, most, I am afraid. How can I say to her, genius, germ, gentle progenitor, architect of wormholes in dirt and space, how can I say, I fear you, mother, 
You joined the curdled soil before I knew the length of shadows. Now all the storms wear your face. The corn, too, darkens with fullness. <laughs> How strange. She is the most and the least like a human. Unobserved, except in memoriam. So goes the earth. So thanks for listening, and go check out our website at Mother's Grave Pod. It's like, how do I transition out of that poem? I don't, I don't know how to do it. I have been trying for the last hour and a half. I, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> so watch this transition. If you guys like dark things like that poem, go check out our website for, for ghoulish behind-the-scenes images. See, it's just too difficult. So go check out our website at mothersgravepod.com, and you can see behind-the-scenes images of this episode. Pictures of Elaine as a little baby in his Halloween costumes. Pictures of his mom as a witch. You can also see photos of Angela and I in our old people masks that we talk about in this episode. And on our website, you can also learn about the Black AIDS Institute, which is a leader in ending HIV in Black America. This institute is really important to Lane. They are revolutionizing the HIV service industry to center and uplift Black experiences to allow Black people to live their fullest, healthiest lives with dignity, care, and respect. You can read more about them at our website or go to blackaids.org. I want to thank Lane for talking with me and for sharing that gorgeous poem. I also want to thank Susie Pond, one of my oldest friends with Redbird Media Group, for editing and producing this podcast, Alice Anderson for sound mixing, Notoria Marketing and Design for our website, Meredith Montgomery for the logo and individual episode designs, and Matt Chapman for his theme music. And special thanks to Jill Wolf, my therapist, Heather Bodie, Laura Nicole, Danny Bravman, Jonathan Bode, and all of my friends for your love and support. It means a lot. Thank you. I never, ever went as a sexy devil or a sexy witch for Halloween, ever. In college, I went as a dead prom queen once, but I wouldn't say it was sexy since I had a slit in my throat with blood coming down, white face makeup on, a page boy wig, and I'm sure I was high for most of the night. I don't remember a lot of it. I also went as a grown-up Teletubby my sophomore year of college. When I was younger, I went as Nurse Ratchet from Cuckoo's Nest way before the TV show, way before it was popular. I went as a large gumball machine with a big bag around me and individual balloons inside. Yeah, hot. When I was eight years old, I went as Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And almost everything I was wearing, and most Halloweens, everything I was wearing was stolen from Glenbard North High School where my mom taught biology. <laughs> she got so much stuff from that theater department and from that biology classroom that I used in my costumes. When I was Doc Brown, I was wearing a full lab coat, pants, large goggles, lab gloves, a garter belt around my waist that she put glass test tubes in and little beakers. I think it even had a large lighter on me, but 
yeah, I can't remember, but now that I think about it, that feels really dangerous. And pencils in my little pocket protector and a big white crazy hair going every which way wig. Doc Brown, eight years old. Yeah, my mom let me do whatever I wanted. The weirder, the better. Go for it. Do what you need to do. She was really creative and really encouraged that in me. I mean, come on, as a fifth grader, I went as an old man in fifth grade. Yeah, my mom was cool. (laughs) Talk to you guys next time.